Welcome to episode 57 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we're back with another exciting foray into the wonderful world of film. With us tonight is returning guest, former employee of Eastman Kodak, author of Making Kodak Film, and all-around film guru, Robert Chambrook. How are you doing tonight, Robert? Fine, thank you. As usual, the gang is all here. Starting us off from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. Is it finally starting to feel like fall down there, Anthony? We had our first cool day today. We had uh, a high of 71 and a low of 47, and I am so happy. Next, from the land of Vegemite and Tim Tams, is our own Camerosity Podcast Authority on jar-based vegetarian spread and chocolate-covered biscuits, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, I just tried Tim Tams for the first time this weekend, and they were pretty good. Oh, they're, they're fantastic. And they are biscuits. I don't know who the hell decided in the US they needed it to be called cookies. But that's, yeah, that's just a travesty. I was told you're supposed to take a small bite on opposite ends of it and then stick it in milk and use it like a straw. Is that the correct way to eat them? That is the correct way to eat them. Seriously? Yes. Seriously? That's what you do? <laughs> yes. It soaks up the milk and ter- makes it, it actually turns it into a cookie. <laughs> it becomes even less biscuit-like uh, the more it, you, you soak it up with milk. Now we're going into dangerous territory. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, from a state that's round on the sides and high in the middle, is Mr. Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul, what do people in Ohio do for fun? We don't have fun in Ohio. <laughs> All right, well, that's a good way to get started off. Uh, we have, uh, looks like, a couple people in the waiting room, so let's uh, invite them in. All right, Mina's back. Welcome back to the show, Mina. Thanks, guys. Good to see you all again. All right. We get we, we were just having an intellectual conversation about Tim Tams. Do you have a strong opinion on them? I do. I don't like them. <laughs> oh, oh, Dig him oh, out. No. Dig him out. <laughs> I don't like them. I don't understand. Like, I think I don't mind the outside of them, but the filling is, is actually not that good. <laughs> so hey, I'll, leave, I'll see myself out. Good day There's to no you. Australian <laughs> unity. <laughs> no, no. You know what it is, it, Mike? It's um, you're either a Tim Tam person or a mint slice person. I'm definitely a mint slice person. Oh, I like both. Yeah, yeah but Theo, like that's just sitting on the fence of being Switzerland about it. Like, <laughs> I think you need to take a decision. Is a mint slice also a biscuit covered in chocolate that's minty? Yeah, it's like a. I think it's like a maybe what you guys call a graham cracker with like a paste of mint, like a minty paste, and it's covered totally in dark chocolate. That it would sounds be like a Girl like Scout. The, the Girl Scout, thin yeah, Thin Mints, okay, yeah. 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 They're made by Keebler, and Keebler sells them like that, but everybody in the United States knows them as Girl Scout Thin Mints, so they're pretty oh, right, popular right. here. The closest thing I had in the U.S. that came, like that was similar to the mint slice is uh, the Junior Mints, but then imagine it's on a biscuit. Yeah, and okay. Bigger. And we also have Jesse Wisdom. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me in. All right, you want to do a quick intro yourself? Uh, yeah, I just uh, I started shooting film and photography in general in 2020, and quickly fell in love and do everything from medium format to eight by ten now. But my true passion is instant film of all kinds. Instant film. Wow. If only you had some instant film to talk about. I might have a pack or two <laughs> that came in the mail today. Nice. All right. Well, we'll get started. Uh, and if more people show up, we'll let them in. Uh, we're welcoming Robert back. He's been on the show before. In fact, we've had really good luck with some Kodak themed episodes. Our, our last episode with Todd Gustafson um, turns out to be our most listened to show ever. So 
It feels like that's a deep well. We've had Robert on the show before, so we'll try not to repeat too much of what we discussed in those early episodes. But I mean, you know, pretty much anything's anything's up on our show. So, Robert, um, what's new? I mean, any anything different since the last time you've been on the show? I think the one thing that's new is that, you know, Codex made a statement they intend on staying in the film business uh, as long as there's demand for film. Up until now, you never quite knew exactly, and they, they hadn't really made a commitment to stay in the film business. And now they're saying they're going to stay in the film business as long as there's demand for film. Uh, that's been helped by Oppenheimer, I think, that's given more attention to the to cine film. And they've been doing things to improve their ability to finish 35 millimeter magazines. So that that's helping their commitment to film. So I'm 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 hopeful and impressed that uh, they're take making positive statements. Would you say that they've had to adjust from 20 years ago to adapt to producing at smaller volumes? to stay profitable and make it worthwhile. Like obviously 20, 30, 40 years ago, they were just pumping out film like crazy. And to have all that machinery still working today wouldn't be practical. So they would have had to have done some level of downscaling to still be able to do it, but not by running these huge monstrous assembly lines. Is is that something, I mean, am I making sense there? You're making sense, however, they are they are using the same equipment and they have had to make modifications. The biggest challenge in my time, I retired in 2003, exactly 20 years and 16 days ago. The oh, biggest wow. challenge in my time was making enough that we had factories in various countries of the world. And the biggest problem was making enough film. We had most factories work 364 days a year. Uh, we closed down for Christmas and worked uh, pretty much 24 hours a day. And the, the, the challenge was balancing production amongst the factories so we could make enough. The challenge today is making huge amounts less, uh, make you know, virtually tiny amounts today. But because of the ability of the people and the equipment, they're, they're still able to use the same coating machines that they for making for well emulsion making rooms for making emulsions and for coating, uh, but they've had to adapt somewhat to smaller batch sizes. And in the finishing world, they're making they're using the same spoolers they used when I was there, but there's a whole lot fewer of them. There used to be spoolers all around the world. And now there's only a few, and they're in, they're all in Rochester. Uh, a few is a few means one or two, by the way. But they they've done a lot. I still believe, and probably the best film that's ever been made is the film that's being made today. I don't think they've taken any sacrifice in quality. Uh, the emul- the emulsion making equipment they use is still has the same control of of the old ones. They just don't use them as frequently, and they've had to do some modification so that they could handle uh, smaller batches. Uh, there's a picture in my book of a small scale, it's called lemur, a small, uh, the monkey lemur. It's a small scale emulsion making, but that that device had the same capability as the larger making. Uh, it, was, it was built for smaller volumes 
about 30 years ago. It's interesting you brought up Oppenheimer. I mean, obviously that movie has has resonated with a lot of different people for many different reasons. But um, you're right, you know, that Christopher Nolan uh, is a huge fan of film. He's used it before on other of his movies too. But if I remember correctly, didn't he actually get Kodak to create um, a larger version of Double X that they had never made before? Yes, they finished it differently. I happen to know from talking to people that sounds like a very easy thing to do. And I assumed it was a very easy thing to do. And I was wrong. The problem was that they ran into for making 65 millimeter camera origination film is that the projectors or the, the, the not the projectors, but the cameras used for the IMAX system need very, very accurate perforation location. And they had not developed that for uh, black and white film. And it took some effort, like a couple weeks of effort. And they actually hired somebody back who had previously retired, who was expert in uh, what we called standard perforation, which is a die that goes up and down and punches the holes very accurately. And that took some effort on Kodak's part. Uh, they were very modest in saying that um, they made the. I, I think it's yeah. I think it was double X film that they made it in the sixty in sixty five millimeter. But it took some effort. Those perforators and those films were not originally designed to have the perforation accuracy that's required for IMAX cameras. Are they double perforated? The IMAX yeah, it's cameras. A conventional, it's sixty. It's a conventional sixty five millimeter. Okay. All right. Perf. Uh, so. Robert, when when you step down your production capabilities, it seems to me like it probably is harder to maintain consistency on a lower volume than it would be on a higher volume to stay in control. Absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, it's the same way in the photo finishing business. Yeah, exactly. The, the more stuff you run through the processor, the easier it is to stay in control. And the more frequently you make the same, okay, there's two worlds, right? If, if you're a marketing guy, you want film with every 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 roll of film has wants to have a different feature. You want perfect film, so you want a hundred different kinds of films. If you're a manufacturing guy, you want to make one film. You want to make it every day, but somewhere in between is where reality strikes. Uh, in the old days, you'd hope you'd be making color nag or ectochrome or whatever. You hope to be making making it a couple times a week. And now I don't think they I don't think they make the same product as often. So it puts a lot more demand uh, on the emulsion makers so that they end up with the consistency they re require. It's not terribly unlike photo finishing in that sense. Well, let me ask you this, because this is something, you know, as a longtime Kodak, Eastman Kodak dealer and having spent time in Rochester over the years, we were always told that in the consumer line of film, a roll of film was made with an aim point as to when it would be used. Correct. For example, if 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 they made a roll of film in January, it would it had a certain characteristic. But then in July, they figured that's when it was going to get shot, and it would be a different characteristic. And then in December, as it's aged another six months, I'm, I'm compressing the time here because it probably yeah. is more in years than it is in months. But they're 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 making it with with some latitude and some flexibility and and the ability for the film to age as time goes on whereas you didn't have that with the professional film the pro professional films were made 
to be what they were. And therefore, they were kept refrigerated and and uh, had no aim point for the use. That's true. You had a you had a manufacturing aim. That's the aim that you were shooting for about two weeks after sensitizing. So you so you'd have a manufacturing aim. You'd also have a customer aim, and a customer aim would be different depending upon the application. For instance, if you said for professional, the customer aim and the manufacturing aim were pretty close for consumer coat of color where you might have a couple a couple christmases on a single roll then the manufacturing aim and the customer aim would be further apart and you try to estimate where the film would be at six months or nine months or 18 months later and you you did that and there's two ways of doing that one way you did it was based on previous experience and you had you had film that you made 18 months ago and you know where it is today and you'd have you you test it periodically through its life the second thing you would do is incubate it and you'd incubate it through a series of temperature and humidity conditions and that upped that would give a pretty good estimate four weeks uh, the the worst case would be like four weeks at 120 degrees 40 or 50% humidity that would pretty much simulate like what it would look like at two years. If you went to higher temperatures behind, beyond 120F, the, predict, the predictability fell apart. We'd run a test at 140, but you'd always look at that and say, not sure exactly what that tells me at 140 at two or four weeks, because the funny things happen at those higher temperatures. Let's say we'd run it, uh, we'd have a room temperature sample. We'd have an 80, 100, 120, and 140. We'd never go beyond. I don't recall ever going beyond 140. And you look at those those incubated samples periodically to, to predict how the film would perform in, in the future. 124 weeks kind of predicts two years. So it's, you know, it's Arrhenius testing. It's pretty predictive. So in other words, you're just like torture testing the film to kind of estimate its predictability. Well, what's the, the other choice is I'll give you a call in two weeks and tell you if you can ship. Really yeah. yeah. I have a question slash comment about the, like the consistency and quality control. I, I don't want to say consistency doesn't matter these days because obviously it still does, but does it really matter as much as it did? Like say in the eighties and nineties where pros were buying cases of the same emulsion lot of E6 film and making sure they got the ISO and filtering right for that whole batch. Like, how, how much of that kind of stuff is really being done these days, especially with E6 film? I think they're still doing it, but I agree with you that it, since most films are scanned, you they, they you could be a little more flexible, but I'm not, I've asked that question and nobody will tell me that they've loosened the standards. But the other point is that the, the other effort that went on uh, with the build, building of Building 38, which was in 1990, and efforts after that, it doesn't really cost more to make something consistent. In fact, it's if, if you get to the point where you're making a consistent product, it, it doesn't cost you more to do it, and it's it's the right the right way to do it. And a lot of work went into developing the technology so you could do it consistently. In the old in the old days, by the old days, I'll say in the '60s, you'd make a lot of film, and most of the effort went into testing to select select the good film from the bad film 
and there was more bad film than good film. It was, you know, the waste was incredibly high. And starting in when Building 38 came out in the 90s, there really wasn't that much waste because the process became predictable and controllable. It, it doesn't really take a lot more effort to make it consistent than to not make it consistent. Was that also because Kodak was able to then start working with their upstream suppliers a lot closer as well to make sure that the materials they were providing were also more consistent? Because obviously the consistency needs to start before the actual manufacturing process as well. Yeah, that was all part of the Building 38 effort. If you were making a component and it wasn't quite right, you'd you'd forward it on to the next guy and tell him, just make a little bit of adjustment to make up for the variability. And that practice was then condemned and wasn't done anymore. We simply would, product had to be within a very, very strict raw material standard before it would be passed on. And there was a lot of pain endured to do that because at the beginning there was high waste. But when you make that your mantra and you really try to keep things within control, Everything stays within control, and it's a lot easier. And that's why that's why the waste went down. There's and there's a, there's two reasons for in, improving waste from a manufacturing point of view, and this is kind of Deming based uh, quality control. You can either make a lot of stuff and sort the good and bad and throw it away, or you can only make good. And we were to the point that we couldn't. We, we would have had to add even, we added a major manufacturing facility every decade from 1890 to 2000 because we couldn't keep up. We couldn't make enough. So you can, you can improve your productivity two ways. One, you, you, you can only make good stuff or you can make, have another production machine to make some good and some bad and throw it away. So did Kodak ever consider like taking a film that maybe wasn't up to snuff for the pros, but was still consistent and rebadging it as like a consumer grade or did they, they just wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't do it. And I'll, I'll expand on that one step. I was always under pressure from some of the marketing guys saying, you know what? I want to give some film to a school. Don't you have some bad stuff? Right. You can yeah. Do? No, we don't do that. Okay. If it's not good enough to sell, it's not good enough to give away. If you're giving it to a school, you're doing it because you, 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 you hope that this person becomes a photographer in the future. Do you want to give them your bad stuff and say, this is what we make? We, I remember when I was at RIT, we got a box of paper from, from Xerox. It was still making black and white paper in the 60s. And it wasn't very good, but it turned me off to to Xerox, to buying Xerox, which was called halide at that point, halide papers. So I, I got a lot of grief over it, but I always took the position, I'd, I'd rather give you good film. If, it, if it's not good enough to sell, it's not good enough to give away. So we never gave away, we would destroy B-grade stuff. That That's what was done in my time. I have two questions, if possible. Um, Go for it. You mentioned... Robert, that the that you were sort of torture testing the film, and one thing that comes up a lot, I guess, in our region of the world because of the and it may happen also in the states, is the uh, the variety of um, of temperatures that we will get throughout the year, and a lot of the times we will see people selling expired film or maybe even fresh film, not as much, but film in general where 
the storage conditions are not known, and therefore it's highly likely that 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 film has fluctuated from very cold to very hot. So my question is, is film that has been at a consistent temperature outside of the suggested range, often it's below 20 or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, is it better or is it more, I guess, uh, your results will be more uh, consistent if I got a packet of film uh, or a roll of film that was stored permanently at 30 degrees or is a film that has had fluctuations throughout its life more likely to give you more acceptable results or is it the same across the board the temperature it's a chemical reaction you got chemicals suspended in gelatin if with time there's a thermal component that will change the reaction is a film that varies in temperature will probably be better off than one that is at an elevated temperature for the whole time the the limit being 120 once you get behind 100 beyond 120 the rules kind of change because films don't survive well beyond 120 and things will happen but generally it's a it's a cumulative the, the accumulation of time and like if you cook a loaf of bread if you're if you're making I, I try to make an analogy you're making a loaf of bread and you cook it for a while at 250 and some at 450 does that average out to 350 probably not there's different things going on. The biggest risk in temperature is if some reason the humidity seal is broken. Humidity and the, and the, you know, so those little film cans and the vapor barrier around 120 in sheet film will make a difference. Humidity has a huge impact because if it gets into high humidity, the gelatin picks up the humidity and things start to move around and react take place yeah that makes sense the second question was in in the heyday when there were regional facilities and regional regional production what were there differences in the output to mitigate the local variation in temperature so if you were producing for the asian market and for example you knew that the that that film was generally going to be sold in areas of high humidity high temperature was kodak gold there different to kodak gold in europe in my time, my time being 1980 to 2003, we did not change film formulas to provide superior keeping to be used in the Asia-Pacific region. So we, we divided the world into chunks, U.S. and Canada, South America, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific, and Europe, and we can kind of combine East and West Europe. We did not change formulas for the market. We did change aim points. For instance, we made films, a film called Miyabi for the Japanese market that would change the magenta contrast so that flush would not appear quite so yellow. Right, okay. We made a special film for the Korean market, which was four by five sheet film. The film formula was the same, but for, for the Korean wedding, we called it Korean wedding film. Uh, I don't recall the exact name. That would have special packaging, so which provided phys more physical protection. We actually vacuum packed the film, so when, when it got shipped air, it would not vibrate and get shocking marks on it. And it also sealed it better for humidity. So th those sorts of things were done. Uh, we were very careful in moving film to... Uh, Australia and such, we would ship a lot of film by air as opposed to surface. So 
the temp because sometimes you'd have problems with getting good temperature control with a ship that has to go around. The distance is just too long for that temperature to be consistent. Yeah. And if it's going around Africa to get to Australia, or if it's going from uh, Whittier in Los Angeles uh, or Long Beach, it's the hell of a, it's a long ways. So it would be subjected to things. While I was researching um, uh, a Kanishi Roku earlier, early Kanaka Perlet, um, I was reading a book about the early days of the Japanese photo industry. And one thing I found interesting, which is similar to what you just touched upon, is in Japan pre World War II or even pre World War One, plate film cameras were maintained popularity in Japan much longer than um, roll film did. Like when Eastman Kodak first came out with the you know the earlier roll films. They didn't market well there because the film that you couldn't air transport it to get the film to Japan, it just wouldn't survive. Whereas the um, the materials to coat your own plates could be transported a lot easier. So you didn't really start to see too much roll film cameras, you know, in the early Japanese market, Kunishiroku, until like the 19 teens, a good 20 years after it started to get common or i shouldn't say common but it started to catch on in america and in europe um about 20 years earlier than it did in japan for the exact reason you just mentioned the, the other thing i was thinking of but didn't mention i'll mention now was we did they did make a film i don't remember what year it started they make called the tropical pack and it was you'll see film that's in a soft metal magazine i assume it was tin and it was an it was like a film can and the film was inside this. And what happened was after the opening of the Panama Canal, Kodak stationed people in Panama at the tropical lab. And in the tropical lab, they would do processing and film storage tests to make films specifically for use in tropical conditions, such you'd find in Africa, perhaps in Northern Australia, and in, 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 in Asia and South America. And this lab was set up and there were people, people there. And I actually read an article describing the laboratory. The laboratory was divided in half. Half of the laboratory was air conditioned and the other half was not. So they had dark rooms and such in tropical conditions open to the Panamanian environment. So I'm sure they went to work and it was 100 degrees and 90 90% humidity, and they were doing processing and printing uh, just to make sure the materials would work. And there were tropical packs of photographic chemicals also, because if you know, like, like D76 and Dectol, if there's any humidity that gets in there, they have a tendency to not do well. So they'd have special packaging for the tropics. Well, it wasn't even just film, too. I mean, cameras were made for the tropics, too. You'll see what, you know, trope, they call them tropin or tropical cameras, and they're usually just solid wood. They weren't covered in leather because they realized different that- Different types of wood so that it wouldn't absorb. Right. There was a lot of effort put into camera making in the early 20th century, and they're very beautiful. They're highly sought after today because they're very pretty. Um, but for that exact reason, the, the leather that they were using back then would obviously, I mean, leather is skin. You know, it would absorb moisture, and you didn't want that. Yeah, I know Graflex did that too. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously a film that was made for the South American market called uh, Pro Image 100, yeah. uh, which is sold currently. And I quite like that film. It's actually a really nice film. Was that specifically manufactured to handle the, I mean, from what I've read, that was manufactured to specifically handle the higher temperatures without refrigeration. 
So, so that was a totally different formula to, to some of the other films. It was very similar to to the other films. It was more similar than dissimilar. Uh, there's two films. There's Pro Image film that was sold in Latin American region, and Pro Photo film that was sold in mostly Eastern Europe. Also, it was sold at a very low price to, and Africa, by the way. But to, but to compete in that low low price market, but we we knew how to make make it so that it would withstand the temperature so we did did that affect the actual image output or um, was it expected the lower quality or it was just just different it was just different no, no one could ever tell the difference in fact the printing conditions is from a photo finishing point of view the the printing codes were the same so that they could print under with in the same under the same channels robert i have a question you know it wasn't just uh, oppenheimer uh, rather famously, there's a, an HBO series called Euphoria that shot its entire second season on ectochrome, and that they had to do a special run of cinematic ectochrome. Which, if you've ever like, I used to shoot 16 millimeter reversal, and you have to like work with things like inter negatives when you're editing and all. Um, but just from a, a Kodak manufacturing standpoint, you know they brought back commercial ectochrome. Uh, but what was that, Paul? Maybe four years ago, five years ago, they brought back the ectochrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, the use of it in this series was like a massive order for them uh, from a Kodak side of things. You know, they've never expanded the line past the, is it Ectochrome 100 was what they brought back. Yeah. Um, but you know, there used to be that like Fuji would have, you know, Velvia 50 and Velvia 400, but you don't see that with the Ectochrome from a Kodak perspective. Is it just more difficult to coat Ectochrome at different ISOs or, uh, is it just that there's just such a limited capacity that they're uh, sort of maxed out just doing the 100 that they have and that there's just no ability to expand beyond that? I think it's a demand issue. Uh, if you notice, I shuddered when you said they did it on ectochrome. That's a bear. I mean, you, you, you'd much rather have cinematographers shooting color negative film and then make a make a print from that because, you know, controlling ectochrome from, from even in a shooting environment it's tough. I mean, particularly if you're shooting a film in which you've got some available light and you've got some provided light and you got different lights and now you got to deal with even small color balances will, will raise hell with you. Uh, and you're trying to make sunlight main and you're trying to fill that 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 becomes difficult. I mean, I can't, in, in my time in Ectochrome, we had a 50. 100, 200, 400, 160, 64 T. Oh, we had an 816 and a, a, a flavor of 400 that you could push to 800 and 1600. So it was quite a bushel basket of things you were working with. I think the situation today is you, you don't sell that much ectochrome still or motion picture, though the, there could be applications that come and go. But to have a full portfolio of several speeds. I don't think the demand is there to justify it. And you're not going to, and you don't want to have a film as you, as you pointed out before, you don't want to have a film that you only make once a quarter. That, that's not a happy time for the manufacturing, the motion manufacturing people. You, you like to make it frequently. So I suspect that's the case. Will they come out with additional electrochromes? I don't, I don't know. Interestingly, the show that he's talking about, they actually cross-processed all the ectochrome they shot too. Oh, that's a that's an interesting twist. 
Well, the ectochrome for ectochrome for CINE processing was a different process than E6 and E right. E4. It was EA. Yeah. It wasn't EA5? EA. Well, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a cousin to E4 and E6. It was a cousin to E6, and they may have called it E5, and there was an E7 too, but it was never. Yeah, an EA something or other, but it was it was very difficult to process. I mean, E6 was actually a very forgiving process in in short run. In, yeah. in long run, you really wanted to stay in control because you could get color shift very easily. That couldn't, I mean, with a color negative, you screw up a color negative in the processing, they can always do something in the printing. But on E6 or any ectochrome uh, process, you, you, you wound up with what you got. So you, it really needed to be done right. And there was not, there wasn't much flexibility in, in uh, the semi processing on, on ectochrome film. From a manufacturing standpoint, is, is ectochrome not easier or more difficult, but just different than reversal? It's more difficult. E6 film building is more difficult than color nag because you got your remember you're develop you're developing an image and then you're then you're using the non-developed portion of it using the other side and you don't have a, the tolerances are very small because your eye can pick up very very small differences and E6 got to be to a good point there's a program called QLab and QLab helped the laboratories stay with gave them simple tools to stay within control easier. There were other ectochrome reversal processes such as EA5, which was similar to E6, which was used for aerial. That's the one I was trying to remember, Robert, yeah. That because uh, I, I supplied uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, is, was one of my customers, and yeah. uh, they bought EA5 in five-gallon cubitainers because they were doing all the uh, all the aerial processing. That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah, the, the the shifts though the, the major shifts were when ectochrome went from E3 to E4 and then yep. to E6 because E3 was dates back into the early 60s and it was actually a light reversal you had to expose you re-expose the film to a, a light source to reverse the image and then when you went to E4 it was a chemical reversal so that took a lot of the the consistency became a lot better with E4 than it was with E3. And then with E6, it was still a chemical reversal, but they, they lowered the number of steps. Am, am I am I saying that correctly? Yeah. I processed E2, E3 in the, in the 60s. And my first job, my summer job at Kodak one year was uh, processing E, well, I did color printing, but I also did some E4, E, E3 processing. So I, I know what you're saying. And you had to have this bright light and you did the reversal. Yeah. You had to the total reversal. And if you didn't do if you didn't flash it enough. Uh-huh. And an E3, the E3 process was a 250 watt photo flood bulb at a distance of 12 inches. And think about doing that in total darkness. And well, you well, you weren't in total darkness at that point because you had to have the light on. But if you splash water on a hot 250 watt bulb. You were uh, you were certainly going to be you're going to get showered with glass. I did that, and uh, you had to be here. You are here. You are standing in a dark room, okay, holding a 250 watt lamp with water slapped all over the place. You're standing there holding the thing in front of a sink with hot water in it. If you touch the lamp, even the housing, you're going to get burned. 
And if you drop it, you're going to get electrocuted. So you got to think, decide if you're going to get hung or shot. <laughs> I'll tell you another processing story. The first studio I worked in, we we uh, processed black and white with a retin three, and we had a retin three inspection filter. So here I am, I was a high school kid. Okay, I was like 15 years old. And they said, you go in here and you process it and you turn the light on and you look. Well, nobody told me when you turn the light on, you're going to get a shock. So you were, headed, you, had, you were inspired not to keep the light on too long because the whole time the light was on, who, how much developer had gone over the switch. So the whole time in doing inspection, I'm getting a, I'm getting a little shock. <laughs> not enough to knock you down, but enough to make you uncomfortable. A slight correction. <laughs> so yeah, uh, ectochrome is more difficult. It's it's absolutely more difficult. Well, the uh, in, back when the studios first started using ectochrome in eight by ten, the big New York studios, they it was very slow and it was made for hot lights. And uh, you know, the, my favorite Kodak story of all time was uh, the big studio in New York was doing a Christmas catalog. So they had a family group in the in the living room with the Christmas tree and the, the family dog and the little kids and everybody around the tree. And uh, so they would shoot eight by tens and rush them up to Rochester, throw them over the fence for them to process. The next day, the film would come back and the art director would call and say, reshoot, dog moved. So they would they would double the amount of light and get a little higher shutter speed, repeat the whole process, run it up to Rochester, come back. Art director calls, says, reshoot, dog moved. So then the art, the art director says, stuff the dog. So they, they stuffed the dog and uh, ran it up there, shot it again, got it back. Art director looks in and says, reshoot, dog looks dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Jesse has a, has a question. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Robert um, from the 90s, the pro series of films like PRT, PRN, PMC, Mm -hmm. And uh, how similar those are to the current Portra and like what technologies from those films were adopted into Portra. Uh, I have a big stash of some freezer stored stuff of that film and I really like it a lot and it's hard to find info about it. So it's a, you mentioned PRN, which was called Pro 100. There was a Pro 400. There was a Pro 400 MC and there was a tungsten flavor PRT, as I recall. Those, I'll do the 400s because they're easy. I, I managed all, those are all my babies, so I know them well. Yeah, I figured you would. Pro 400 was a close cousin to the consumer film at that time. It had a pretty good color saturation and pretty high contrast. Uh, Pro 400 MC, which we called Eclipse when it was being developed, stands for medium contrast. It had about a 10 or 15% lower contrast and was totally different than the uh, Pro 400 film. Uh, they, they printed on separate channels, your photo finishers. Well, and the Pro, let's see, PRN was Pro 400. I, I remember shooting a lot of that. That would be the normal contrast, wouldn't it, Robert? The yeah, that would be normal. normal. It was slow. It was 100 speed. Right. And it was a it was a deviation of the consumer 100 speed. No, it was a deviation from the consumer 100 or 200, but it had better sit. It had better sharpness than the consumer film. It would have been like Portra 160 NC. 
normal contrast, normal color. Yeah. And what we did, we took, uh, can I remember I retired 20 years ago. Well, and I'm right behind you. I retired in 2010. Right. So, so I worked on that film in 1990, as I recall. Yeah. What we did, we took the 200 speed, ah, I remember now, we took the 200 speed film and added a little dye to it. We added a, a, a dye that absorbed light, but we the native film speed was about the same as 200, but by adding a little dye, you got less scatter. You pissed away a little speed, okay? But you got less scatter. And because you got less scatter, the film was sharper. So it was appealing to pros because you now you had a hundred speed film that was sharper than any of the other hundred speed films, simply because we added some dye to the 200 speed emulsion. So we didn't get scatter. So we didn't have, we didn't do it in the normal way of improving the grain structure. We got the sharpness by getting rid of the optical scatter that would happen in the emulsion. I'm trying to remember too, I think at that point, also, they because they had done that, it responded better to flash. It, it didn't have any, uh, the short duration uh, didn't affect the either the ASA or the uh, the color. Yeah. What Okay, what was going on in parallel and also was in the consumer films, but they didn't really care, was do, uh, we called iridium doping. We used iridium mm-hmm. that would get rid of the reciprocity effect. But reciprocity effect is you expose the film, you, you you expose the several high emulsion, an electron's liberated, and the electron has a tendency to go back go back to its normal state. And because we used iridium, we used iridium, the electron stayed where once it left, it didn't come back. And all films after that point had iridium doping. Uh, it's talked about in the literature, but not much. We never talked about it in advertising or anything. We would just say it's got better reciprocity. We wouldn't say why. And that's why 64T, which was an ectochrome film, up the, the film process, prior to 64T, you had about a stop reciprocity when you went between 100, 100, no, when you went between 10 seconds and 100 seconds. With 64T, because of the doping, there's no difference between ten se- between one second, 10 seconds, and 100 seconds. Uh, we made up a, a, a demonstration where we took, the, we there's a sort of this futurist, I still have the transparency, I think I gave the transparencies to the Eastern House. We had a New York City photographer set up an arc, a furniture shot, and we shot it in such a way that we could do, we could expose it one second, 10 and 100, and we shot them all at the box speed. And there was no difference, and you couldn't tell the transparencies apart. There was no difference in contrast, and there was no difference in density. That made all the difference in the world of commercial photographers. Oh, yeah, because it's I crazy. mean, that was, that was a game changer when you did that. Yeah. And, and uh, also for, for, for things like what you, you do, you remember the uh, big shot that you did of, Grand Central Station with nobody in it. They yeah. used a one ten thousandth neutral density filter, so they had an exposure of like twelve hours or something. And uh, they shot Grand Central Station, and there were no people in it because no one stood there long enough to register on the image. I didn't answer part of the question, being uh, relative to Portra. Portra was a clean slate that everything we 
we started from scratch. We actually tried to make another film before Portra in between the Pro series and the Portra series. And that project was called Iris. And that was a color negative film that never was never it never made it to the market. I thought that was Vera Color Three. Was it no. that the predecessor? No? Okay. Vericolor 3 was the predecessor. There was Vericolor, Vericolor 2, and Vericolor 3. Vericolor 3 was, there you go. Vericolor 3 was in the marketplace. There was another one that was maybe, was sort of Vericolor 4, but we we never we never commercialized it. Instead, we did Portra, and that's why it was kind of, there you go. That's why it was kind of, there was a period of, a longer period before Portra came out. Than okay, that I was, I, I was, falsely under the assumption that that was a predecessor. Uh, I know it's offered in like the 160 portraits um, speeds. Yeah. And um, while, you know, it, it, it's clearly showing its age, I've that exact film, Mina, I have boxes just like that. Uh, three or the 400. That's where I, I, I disappeared off video to go to the fridge because I've got to go at 12, but I would love to learn. And I'm going to come back to the recording once it's released a little bit more about these and whether or not they, you know, you've, you've mentioned Robert, that they didn't really predate or they, they're not in the same lineage as Portra, but are these the end point to all the all the color development prior to Portra? Or did anything come after this that carried some of the genes of the very color series? Or did very color just end? Very color just ended, period. We, we started Portra with a clean slate and it was totally all new technology, all new objectives. Uh, I'll tell you a short very color story. When we, we were working on portrait, we went out and actually did tests and did all sorts of stuff to see the difference. And every place we went said, whatever you do, don't discontinue Vericolor 3. No matter who, what, what lab or studio you went to, they said, leave me alone. We don't want any more films. Don't discontinue Vericolor 3. Endlessly, that was the, what we were told. Well, after we came out with Portra, well, you, you got to cover yourself a little bit when you introduce a new film. What if, despite all your efforts, it doesn't go well? What do you do? Do you tell customers too bad you got to buy it anyway? Or do you make a little Vericolor 3 just in case? I took the view of, let's make a few master rolls of Vericolor 3 so nobody burns down my house. Photographers are very intense. If they get used to shooting something and they can't get it anymore, they aren't real happy. So we made sizable production run of Vericolor 3 after we came out with Portra. Now, Portra was a slightly higher price, too, by the way. We got to the point that people wanted to return their Vericolor 3, and they didn't want to buy any more. So we actually threw Vericolor 3 away. We had master rolls of Vericolor 3 that we couldn't sell at 15% less than Portra. That saddens me greatly. <laughs> no, we couldn't sell it at 30% less than than Portra. So before we had it in packages, we took master rolls and scrapped them. Part of the reason that Vericolor was so popular is because it replaced Ectacolor, which was yeah. one of the worst films. That, I mean, it was just a horrible, it, it was just so, I mean, in, in hindsight, it was great. When, when people were using it, it was great. But the difference between Ectacolor and Vericolor was so much that people loved Vericolor and they, they, yeah. They related it to how what how their lives changed when they moved over to it. So that was why Portra, both the 160 and the 400, had such a little bit of had some resistance when it first came out, as you as you said. 
but it it was demonstrably better. I mean, it was a it was a quantum shift to go from ectocolor to vericolor, and the same amount of shift to go from vericolor to portra. Yeah, C- CPS or let's see, it was ect- CPS professional type S and type L. It was a film. CPS was very good. At the time, everybody loved Ectocolor CPS. That was great. Don't screw with my CPS. But then the, the, the Kodak, this was before my time. The Kodak guys were wise enough to say, this is a big step forward. Let's use, let's find, let's come up with a different name. So they took the Veracrome or Vera for accurate color and called it Veracolor. And it was Veracolor, Veracolor 2, and Veracolor 3. And each one was a little better than its predecessor. So yeah, and it shifted from C twenty two process to C forty one, which yeah. was the, the, uh, also a something you know the the labs had to deal with that. They had to make the adjustment at that point because a lot of them were tr- didn't want to run two runs. They didn't want to run two lines. Yeah, and that transition thing is tough. That's why we didn't change C forty one for Portra. And one time I was trying to do a, a replacement for. E6, and I couldn't come up with a good enough. I couldn't come up with good enough features. So instead, we changed the stabilizer for E6 and moved the formaldehyde because mm-hmm. formaldehyde was an issue with C. Well, with C22 and C41 and E in the early ectochrome, uh, and there were films that still required formaldehyde, but we worked our way out of that. Some films obviously were more successful than others. Um, you know, some have lasted generations. Others were gone before you know it there was a film that i had never heard of before it was supra where did this fall into kodak's lineup because it's it's branded kodak professional so um but but why why haven't i heard more about this film that was a film intended for the commercial market and there was some resistance to the commercial market for using certainly resistance to consumer film certainly not appropriate to use pro image or pro photo if you're a commercial shooter. So uh, that was a, another flavor that was available. There was a, a, there was a super 100, if I can get this right, super 200, 400. And I, I think there was a 1600. There was never, I don't think there was a super 100. I, I remember the 1600. 1600. It, it was yeah. a, it was a little higher contrast. Oh yeah. Consider that was the biggest difference. Actually, was the the palette where the contrast was much higher on one on the Supra than it was on the portrait because the portrait was really made for the for the wedding and portrait markets. Yeah, uh, where you didn't want the contrast. Yeah, Supra had more punch, NC or VC. It was actually a really good film. The Supra was actually a very good film. What was its um like era like from about how long was it made for? I think uh, I would say I'm thinking not mid nineties. Because this box expires in 05. Yeah, so it would have been made in 2002. Would have been the last year of production, probably. Okay, somewhere right in that because that's when digital was uh, really beginning to to seriously make inroads on the. Yeah, and the portfolio was too big. They had volume going down. You couldn't continue to make all those films. I mean, at one point. I don't know if you remember this or not, but Eastman Kodak gave the pro stockhouse dealers refrigerators. Yes. We had, uh, we, we actually were given two, not walk-ins, but sliding door, two and three door sliding coolers to store our film in out on the sales floor. And we would have maybe as many as 10 or 12 SKUs of film with, uh, with different uh, speeds and different sizes. Yeah. 
And the only thing they insisted was he didn't put anything in it but Kodak film. Yeah, I had seen places that had green boxes in them too. But. Well, I, I went out, I bought a Dr. Pepper cooler at, a, at an estate sale and I carried my, kept my Fuji film in the Dr. Pepper cooler. That's so cool. we, uh, we, we stayed, uh, we stayed loyal to Kodak on that. I know, uh, changing gears here. I know Jesse really wants to talk about instant film. You know, Robert, I, I obviously that era was while you were at Eastman Kodak, but it didn't go too well for, for Kodak. They were sued by Polaroid, uh, basically forced out of the market in what? 86, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesse, I, I, I'll let you talk, but I know you had a couple questions. Yeah. So, uh, I guess my first question is you probably didn't work much on that side of Kodak. Did you on the instant film side? Yeah. I knew what was going on, but I really did not do anything. Right. But what, here's what happens in a a corporate, at least the Kodak in a corporate world. If you're going to have a project like that, that is, it has to be kept out of the limelight. You set up a silo and in that silo, you, you put, people to work on that and you don't let anybody else know what's going on right they they were in isolation they had their own buildings and their own people and their all their own stuff i knew it was going on but i had no knowledge whatsoever i had no right was it even in rochester it was all in rochester it was rochester okay yeah the uh, a lot of the info i've learned is from the late ron mallory he uh Posted a lot of good information on APUG over the years about Kodak Instant. Didn't Kodak, though, like in Polaroid, w- weren't they cooperating, though, in like the 60s? Kodak was producing the negative side of the instant film, right? Yeah. There's a lot of unhappy people in Rochester. <laughs> they, that, that whole Polaroid thing went. As, as I understand it, this is my speculation. Kodak bent over back. And I know people who did this. Kodak bent over backwards to help Dr. Land. And this is documented in many different places. And saw that as an opportunity, we'll make the negative film and we'll make a few bucks on that. And we'll participate in instant in that fashion. There's a lot of angry people felt felt that Kodak should not have been as generous with him as they were. Uh, not especially after they sued the crap out of him. Well, yeah, but in the beginning, he had no, you know, if Kodak had just said, go away, I'm not sure how long Polaroid would have existed, but instead they saw an opportunity to make negative product and that was profitable. And I I will tell you some, I, I, I say I didn't have anything to do with it, but I also managed uh, type 55. We made the negative for type 55 up until the very end of type 55. I interfaced with Polaroid for that, but I had nothing to do with the color business. But we we made the negative for Type Fifty Five for you know thirty years. I I was only involved for maybe five. And that was a peel apart film, right? Yeah, it was yeah. a peel apart film. Most of it was sold in Japan, despite what Americans will tell you. We sold tremendous amounts in Japan. I don't know where it all went in Japan, but it was very popular in in in. In, in New York and commercial, but we sold even more in Japan. I don't. I just don't know where it all went in Japan. I actually went to Japan one time trying to figure out where it all went. I've been finding some boxes out in Japan recently. Okay. The negative was definitely the best part of six six five or fifty five. The print quality was was 
crap compared to, to what you could get from the, the negative would actually, if you cleared it properly and washed it, it would make a very nice uh, fiber-based print. Yeah, it was an excellent, the negative was good. It was fine grain. As I recall, you gave it a stop more exposure than would give you a good print. And you put it in a sulfite yeah. and they made a little Tupperware looking. Clearing bath. Clearing bath. And they were nice negatives. And we sold it to them. And we just basically sold them a roll of film. It has the words on it. The Kodak documentation called it Panatomic X, but it had no relation whatsoever to Panatomic X. Got me excited. <laughs> That's Mike's favorite film is Panatomic X. So <laughs> you got his attention when you said that. Panatomic X has very, very good tone reproduction, but the sharpness and grain isn't nearly as good as T-Max 100. That uh, Type 55, the Ben Fraternale, he did the video with you, Robert. Uh, that Type yeah. 55 he shot of you for that video, that actually, um, I'm pretty certain I sold that box to him. Oh, and that, okay. that lot of 55, I drove up to Chicago a couple of years ago and bought 91 boxes of wow. 4 by 5 peel apart from a forensic lab. 91 boxes? Wow. Yeah, like... it had been cold stored the whole time. They had used it to take uh, photos of fingerprints for yeah. evidence. And it took them a while to switch to digital because, you know, the software had to be written that could hold up in court compared yeah. to a Polaroid where you have the image and that's that. So they used it until about 2010. And they had bought a ton when it got announced and discontinued to stock up for that purpose. Yeah, we used to make that. We only made that like kind of thing. I think we made it three. We delivered to them four times a year. So Kodak made the negative for 55 up until 2008 when Polaroid went under. Well, whenever they, whenever they stopped selling it, okay, they certainly would not make the have anybody else. It'd be too much trouble to come up with any uh, anybody other manufacturer's film. It wouldn't be worth the effort. Okay, Robert, on on collaborations like that, um, obviously back in the day when Kodak was competing very aggressively with Fuji, uh, Fujifilm and Ilford to some extent, um, I imagine there would have been no collaboration between those companies because there's yeah, obviously you're competing very aggressively. What's happened recently is Fujifilm discontinued C200 and it reappeared as Fujifilm 200 and it's 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 been touted as it's actually manufactured by Kodak. It's I think it's Color Plus two hundred. That's actually so Color Plus two hundred and Fujifilm C two hundred are now effectively the same film. Was there any other? Yeah, you know, was there actually any collaboration happening at those days, or was it purely you know they're the enemy and we were you know we can't possibly share any sort of knowledge? Well, we're grown ups. Okay, we we, we don't. You know, the, the sales guys might, you know, spit in each other's coffee, but when we had, <laughs> we, we, we would buy him a cup of coffee and be be nice. But here's what we didn't, first I'll tell you what didn't happen. And then what didn't happen, you, you would be very careful, never have any economic price discussions. That's illegal in the United States. So we would never do that. Uh, there were programs like APS, Remember, APS was a collaboration oh. camera, and the, the the big dogs were Kodak and Fuji. I had nothing to do with with APS. Well, I had a little to do with it, but not that seriously. Uh, and I I knew the APS guys, and I knew the discussions that were going on. You know, the re the reason APS is twenty four millimeters is not because of Kodak, but because of Fuji. Kodak wanted to make it thirty five millimeters, 
and the Japanese would not stand for it. So that became 24 millimeters. They needed a small camera and uh, the Kodak guys wanted a bigger one, but it never happened. Uh, there were constant, constant discussions. Well, I've, I've, I'll do one more APS thing. In the a, This is important. In the APS world, in the legal world, you can talk about what you want, the end product, but you can't talk about how you're going to get there. For instance, you can say uh, the film's going to be 24 millimeters wide. It's going to have a magnetic coating on one side. It's going to be in a magazine that's this big and has this resistance. And this is what the DX coating is going to be. But you can't say, I'm going to build a piece of equipment that in this fashion will make the magazine. I can tell you what the end product is. We can discuss that. Right. We can talk about how we're going to get there. So you can't talk about price and you can't talk about how you're going to manufacture things because that becomes a patent issue. You can exchange patents, like on a magazine that was developed jointly, I think. The other thing that goes on is I have a technology and he, he mentioned uh, Connie Sirucco. Kanaka has pretty good technology, though they were, they were never particularly su commercially successful. There were things that Kodak would trade with Kanaka or Fuji and Kodak would trade with Kanaka. And Kodak and Fuji would trade things. And we talked very civilly to each other. There was no animosity. That's not always the case with Polaroid, I don't think. But Kodak and Fuji, they would come here and we would go there. And I met with Fuji on a number of topics. They'd have a technical patent that we're interested in, and, we, and we, we trade. I'll let you give you rights to this patent if you give me rights to that patent. And then that gets into a whole thing about how much is my patent worth. I'll give you two patents for that one, and <clears throat> no cash ever changed hands, I don't believe, by the way. There's a lot of examples of that in the in the photo industry. I mean, even going back to the 1930s, Nippon Kugaku made the lenses and mount for Canon's first camera. Yeah. Uh, in the 60s, Rico and um, Rico and Gaff, General Analyne Film, uh, who was you know over Agfa and Ansco, they they exchanged patents. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot of examples where there was sharing between two companies, sometimes unrelated. And in regards to APS. It's amazing to me that it, it ever even was released at all because of how many people were involved in it. I did an article on it um, last year, and it was almost 50 different companies between filmmakers and camera makers who in some way were involved in the development of that. So, you know, all these different people that all had their ideas and priorities for what they wanted out of it. The fact that APS ever got finished at all, I think, is is kind of a, a miniature miracle in of itself. Yeah. I think it's more of a tragedy than a miracle. I mean, there were some technological advances that came out of APS. Yeah. But the cost of the, it it basically bankrupted a lot of companies. It put them in, on very poor financial footing. Uh, it hurt a lot of dealers, labs in particular. The labs who came in to, and spent a lot of money on APS processing equipment and never recovered the money from it. Right. Um, that was more of a timing issue, though. It wasn't was the it? timing. It was, it was timing. timing. It was too near the mm -hmm. end of the. It was too near the beginning of the end of the digital or the beginning of the digital era. You know, and, and a lot of there were a lot of people in the industry who knew that. A lot of people in the industry said this was going. This is going to bankrupt a lot of people. 
and uh, and no one listened to them because they were too far into it at that point. They they could not they could not back out of it. Um, but when when they announced it, what was how how long was it on the market before it really uh, the sales were only like three or four years before it it really went away. Yeah, that kind of falls under the classification. Is it? Be- it's probably better to do something than nothing. And I think there was a there was a certain desperation involved. And I actually know my, my contemporaries with I know brand that never told by top management. Come up with something. What are you going to do? Yeah, the world's going to change, and we got to do something to keep this. We got to do something to keep the golden goose alive. I found an article from 1979. Uh, Herb Kepler wrote about it, mm-hmm. and there was a prototype new Kodak film. I don't know if the name Evan Albert Edwards rings a bell, Robert. No, but I knew I knew Bert Kepler though. He wrote this article about this new type of Kodak film, and I have an article of it um, on my website. I'll send it to you, but I'll include it in the in the film notes. But it looks very much like APS film. It has a lot of the same characteristics, a tongue, a single perforations, a cassette that actually uses feelers to communicate back to the camera, the yeah. film speed, the type of film. You know, it was basically pre-DX encoding. It used a... Um, the gasketed rectangle that you always see on the back of the film door where you could peep through uh, to see what's written on the the the, um, the actual cassette itself. You know, there's a lot of different, I mean, it was an APS film, but it at least had some of the similar characteristics of it. And that was 1979. It obviously never made it anywhere. For whatever reason, that film, it didn't, it didn't make it past the prototype stage. But had that been more successful, some of the advantages that APS did have, if it had come out in the early 80s, I think it would have been totally different. You know, there would have been much more time before digital uh, photography destroyed it. You know, APS was just too close to the end. But I think had something like that come out 15, 20 years sooner, it would have been a game changer. That's the story of the industry. Yeah. I wasn't aware. I was not aware of that 1979 article. I'll send it to you. Yeah, read it afterwards. It's pretty interesting. So we've talked a lot about film. Obviously, that's your expertise. You know, we dabbled a little bit into um, instant film. I wanted to ask a question, Robert. I know you're not a lens guy. I have one of these, an Aero Ektar. So these were aerial cameras. Uh, one of the ones that's most commonly used in is the Fairchild K20. Do you have any knowledge of Eastman Kodak's production of lenses during World War II? I am a lens guy. I worked in ethics research from 19, 1969 to 1974. And I also worked on spy satellites. That's and right. You have, the, you have the stereo camera on the moon, right? You told us last time. Yeah. So I, I am familiar. I am, don't sleep with that, by the way. Keep it, it away from, uh, from the boys, right? Okay. One of the problems in, in making lenses is to get high refractive indices. And the only way to do that is with uh, radioactive uh, glass. That gla- that particular lens has thorium in it. And as, as a result, if you took a piece of film and you put it next to it for six months or nine months or something, you'd probably fog the film. Those high, those high index lenses were made, and that's an F2.5, I can't, what's the focal length? 178 millimeter. Right. Or seven inches. I, I actually, I used to own one of them, but I don't anymore. Those, the, you know, those, those lenses were made d- during the, during the war. 
after the Second World War. This one's 43, 1943. Okay, they were made at Hawkeye. They made their own glass at that point. The lenses would be ground and polished and assembled at Hawkeye. Uh, that lens was probably designed by Dr. Kingslake. I don't know that for a fact, but he, whoever designed it worked for Kingslake, and so it was designed under his uh, supervision. Would there ever have been a commercial application for this? Paul's got one, too. He got commercial ectars in eight, eight and a half, 10, 12, 14 okay. inches. Same guy who assembled commercial ectars probably put that lens together and same okay. with and there was wide field ectars too which are excellent which one is that paul that's a 305 millimeter yeah 2.5 arrow ectar it wow. weighs 16 pounds it has no iris in it it was made for aerial photography of course it didn't really need to have an iris see this one does yeah that one does yeah it does okay all right because it's got click stops and everything but these are made these are used today for tintype photographers you know, the, 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 the trick is to get a, a camera that the mount could actually hold it because it weighs so much. So heavy. But hang on. I, I need to ask this. Paul, have you adapted it to Micro Four Thirds with all your adapters? <laughs> I think I think Kurt had an adapter, but no, that, really? that lens didn't that lens didn't come from Kurt. That came from someone else. The, that lens does not have thorium in it, fortunately, because it'd be an awful lot of it'd be an awful lot of thorium or LAK nine. Doesn't thorium yellow though? Yeah, thorium gives you the yellow cast on the glass. Maybe I see a little yellow cast. I think when it ages though, isn't it? it you can age out the uh, the thorium, the yellow cast, if you expose it to a yeah. bright UV light for a period of time, it'll take the yellow cast out. But it's still it's still radioactive. The front lens element or even the front grouping is very clearly like got a little bit of a blue to it. So there's I don't know if that's their luminized coating that they used back then. Those lenses were really, really prone to element separation. Okay. And what you would see inside were would be a series of lines that looked like a it looked like a fingerprint. And you'd see it uh, going through the glass. Not all of them had it, but they they, they it was something that happened. I I've had a, a number of those. Those are fantastic lenses. Yeah. I do see a tiny bit of haze. I mean, very, very, very little near the edges. But I mean, overall, I'd say this thing's in, this is a nine out of 10. I know there's a lot of people on eBay that make 3D printed adapters for uh, Grayflex press cameras. So you could buy, the, this one doesn't have an adapter. It's ready to go. So you literally just buy that plate, put it on there and boom, this thing can shoot some four by fives or whatever. Um, so I was just yeah. curious. Those are all the rage these days. They're, they're very desirable. And I mean, I, I have no use for this. I can't, I don't have anything I could do with it, but I mean, just holding it, I guess now that I know it's radioactive, it's probably, although I'm done having children, it's probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> just don't lick it, Mike. Just to... I won't lick it. No, I'm not going to lick it. <laughs> right, I was just curious, like what you could tell me about it. Cause I know that, uh, that, that, that like, like Jesse said, they're all the rage right now. So Robert, this is a bit of a digression, but the last time you were on, you were talking about your spy satellite work. And uh, just last week, I I rewatched um, Ice Station Zebra for the first time since I was like 10 years old. And it just seemed to me that that was your project that, that kicked off the entire film, except for, of course, in the plot of the film, the Russians had stolen your uh, your invention from the U.S. I've probably watched that five or six times. The biggest difference is the film they're dealing with is looked like a hundred foot roll of 16 millimeter. In reality, the film was uh, nine and a half inches wide and 
several hundred feet long. Wow. That's big. Yeah. Well, that big. Wow. They were even bigger. Later satellites, one called Hexagon. You probably won't believe me when I tell you this, but it uh, carried a 30 mile long roll of film, 150,000 feet long by 6.6 inches. Think about it. It's a lot. You could slice that down to Minox and be good for life. Yeah. <laughs> the rolls uh 60 six feet in diameter by six inches wide earlier ones in the time of zebra were like three thousand feet and they were nine and a half inches wide yeah you had to give the jet a good target to catch with the with the hook yeah and they they jettison them and in fact we're going to have a guy come and talk to us in the next few months that flew one of those airplanes wow that he he actually uh, the parachute will come down and they catch it out of the air and the, the joke is if you're a pilot of one of those you you're probably going to have a rank change if you catch it you probably get promoted if you miss it not so good <laughs> <laughs> those kind of applications are so interesting I think younger people like me say that there's a film resurgence these days but they don't consider things like that just how much film was being used on stuff like that. That's been completely supplanted by digital. Yeah. Then look at x-ray. Yeah. You can't, nobody uses film, film and screens anymore. Everything is digital. Ah, uh, my dentist still does. My dentist still does. Only in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I have a dental eye. I have a Yashika dental eye. I want to try and shoot some bugs, some pictures. I, I was joking. I was thinking I should bring it to my actual dentist and be like, Hey, have you ever seen one of these? And he's an older guy. He probably has. I'd be like, can you like take some pictures of my teeth with it? You know, so I, so I could review it or something, see if he could actually get it to work. It's a neat little camera. It's got a ring light permanently attached to the front of the. I've got one of the, I've got one of the Jim Dine 105 macros for came out. And it's a really fantastic lens. Lester Dine made a, that was his industry. I mean, he made uh, cameras for, for law enforcement and for dentists. And uh, basically, you would just take somebody else's camera and a Curon lens and a Sunpack flash unit and uh, put them in a, a nice fitted case and, and sell them. Then I did the same thing, <laughs> but for different different law enforcement applications. But uh, yeah, those are great. Those are a lot of fun. Jesse's point earlier, I mean, how much film was being used absolutely everywhere. Recently, a uh, one of the local companies actually um, cut down film from the old uh, red light cameras or traffic cameras that, that must have gone through just miles and miles of film all the time and, and sold it commercially for, for people to, to do what they like with it. But that point is, you know, you, you don't realise how many areas film was just being used in, in absolutely everything that we take for granted these days which are just digital cameras everywhere. A lot of Kodachrome got used in the dental industry and in medical. Uh, I used to occasionally go to Fairlawn, New Jersey, where the Kodak had a Kodachrome. When I was doing Kodachrome, I would go to Fairlawn, and you'd have to do this at night, and they would take the film off a processor and then run it through this no-touch projector so we could look at it to see what the quality was doing. It was sort of a downstream look at the quality but amazing amount of film was law enforcement dental a lot of autopsies 
I always reference those when I talk about Polaroid's bankruptcy. It's something like 65% of Polaroid's business was non-consumer. Yeah. How did that work, though, back in the days where dentists used, like, actual x-ray film? Did a dental office have, like, a mini lab in the back or something? Like, how- That's what my dentist has. He actually processes it. Um, he just takes it away into the other little room, and he's got a little processing thing, and he does it. Yeah. And it comes back, yeah. There were a number of processors about... They were not much bigger than a printer. They were very simple. I don't recall the names. We made a developer called uh, KRX, which was just a high, sort of like a D19, if you know what that is, sort of a D19 developer, just a high energy developer. And very simple. You'd either pick up the rack and move it manually, or they have this simple transport, like a little photo finisher thing. And you put the chemicals in and let them run for a week. Maybe you replenish, maybe you wouldn't. And then they sort of washed them. And that's how they would do their little uh, dental bites. You know, they came in plastic. You put it in your mouth. I mean, my dad was a dentist and then an orthodontist. And, you know, he always developed his own film right there in the back of the of the office. And, you know, he used me as the guinea pig and setting up his x-ray equipment, which I may end up paying the price for that. Who knows? Because they took a lot of pictures of me um, when I was a kid, Jeez. but it was fun for me because I got to go in the back and like you know see the development and all. And I mean, he also let me play with with uh, merc- like vials of mercury. Anthony, Anthony, your photo albums must be really weird. <laughs> they are. <laughs> His teeth are radioactive, and uh, was it the Mad Hatter? Because they would form yeah. hats used with mercury, so yep. you're gonna go crazy and have messed up teeth before you before you die. I had a question for, I, I or not really a question, but Jesse, you brought something up about there's this resurgence of film. There's definitely an interest with younger people with film photography. A discussion that prompted something Anthony did recently, he uh, went up to Atlanta because KEH had a, uh, like a VIP, uh, Anthony, you could t- t- tell more about it. But how I'm linking these two stories together is there is very clearly an interest in film from a younger crowd. However, I would argue that that interest is still very, very specific. You know, Anthony, when you were at KEH, so why don't you real quick spend a minute and talk about it, and then what types of people were there, and more importantly, what types of cameras were you seeing there? It was an event that was co-sponsored by KEH Camera and uh, a lab out west called The Dark Room, and they called it Filmstock 2023. It was a series of events. It was also with a, a group called Beers and Camera. And they had um, a couple of Beers and Cameras meetups uh, where you just sort of like hung out at a bar or a brewery um, and whipped out your camera and people would just sort of talk to you based on what you had. And then they had uh, what was supposed to be a, 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 a sort of, I thought it was going to be like a guided photo walk where they had uh, flown in uh, like six or eight very young YouTube influencers uh, who were very much treated as, as like a separate VIP class. They got like private uh, tours of KEH's vault, which I got, I hate, I hate to break it to them, but it's nothing compared to, to Paul's basement. And then the, the photo walk um, instead of actually like interacting with these people, it was more like a, a photo flash mob that was just unleashed on the Beltline park in Atlanta. Uh, and it was about 150 people that just showed up with a camera and they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? We just sort of like walk down this trail and take pictures, I guess. And uh, uh, I got stopped more than by anybody that was at the event. People that were not at the event were like, 
what the hell is going on? Is this some sort of a prank? I mean, what is it with all these old cameras out here? The people that were just like on the beltway, they had no idea why there were suddenly 150 film photographers walking around taking their pictures. They were like out for a Saturday stroll. Um, but it was, a, it was, it was a fun day. It was a beautiful day out in Atlanta and I got some great shots myself, but what was very surprising to me is that the average age had to have been under the age of 25 and overwhelmingly there were uh, Leica M bodies and then Pentax six sevens and my uh, Mia uh, RB six sevens. And then uh, just a, a scattering of, of Hasselblad's. I think I saw two Roloflexes and, and that was the overwhelming majority were people that were very young shooting very nice uh, range finders, prestige cameras, absolutely prestige cameras. Yeah. And you know, I was there and I was, I was shooting my, my 1939 Voigtlander superb and, and was completely invisible uh, because it's just not a camera that anybody had ever seen before. I mean, you can't impress somebody if they have no idea what it is that you're shooting. But didn't you show them your Instagram feed and like people like thought you were like speaking another language? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and especially when I showed my, my Flickr page, which sort of indexes all my cameras and, you know, people started scrolling up through and their, their eyes sort of glazed over after, you know, the first few screens of cameras, because you know, most of them I'm sure spent a lot of money on like one or two very nice cameras. And that's you know what they're going to shoot, which is fine. I mean, they're definitely getting right. you know great shots out of their M sixes and their, you know, Sumicron lenses. But it was just, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because if you go back and like look at the hashtag for Filmstock 2023, it's, it's the old story that you can, you can, you know, you can buy the, the, the fastest car on the track, but if you don't know how to drive it, it you know, you could, you could beat it with a station wagon. Uh, at least it was that way in autocross that you saw people that just didn't really have like a great mastery of, of like working with light and understanding light dynamics. Yeah. You've set up my question kind of for, for Jesse, which is, so clearly there's an interest. Younger people are shooting film, but I wonder though, how many of them really care to learn the history? You know, how many of them actually pay attention? Like, do they think that you must use an M6 to be able to shoot film? Do you have to use a Pentex 6.7, the neck breaker? You know, this this gargantuan, impractical camera that's not meant to be a walk around uh, a photo walk type camera. You know, Jesse, you impressed me earlier with your knowledge of Fuji Ace instant cameras, and you have a, a huge amount of interest in a lot of this stuff. But I would argue that even within the minority of film shooters, you're a minority because I don't think there's too many younger people that are interested in film beyond what Kim Kardashian has or what the latest, what Petapixel's telling them that they should be shooting. Am I off on that? I think by and large, the Gen Z and younger millennial crowd, it very much is a hype thing. Uh, like whatever the YouTubers get, I'm going to get that because I watch the YouTubers and right. like, mm -hmm. I, I'm an, I'm an outlier. I'm a super nerd. I love reading about history of stuff. And I want to know about chemical processes and the specific sensitized metallic dye developers in certain types of instant films versus another but i will say too though there is a, a bigger crowd than most people realize of people my age that are enthusiastic about it i, I want a couple of discord servers uh one specifically instant film focused and one is uh, mostly film but all photography and i'd say between those two servers there's probably three to four hundred active people in their teens and 20s that are more nerdy about it and less than the hype side 
but I, I do think like by and large, like I'm, I'm really close with one of my local labs and they say probably 85% of the young people don't even pick their negatives up when they bring right. film in. They just, they don't want the negatives. They just, you know, they want the scans and they don't care about anything else. It occurs to me though, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but it occurs to me that there's still people like this podcast and I'm 45. So I'm, I'm young for the old crowd, right? But there's people still that are interested in the history and the nerdy aspect of it. And they remember a lot of the the characteristics of these old cameras and these film stocks and these lenses firsthand. And then you're telling me that there's these Discord servers where there's younger people who are really getting into the nerdy side of it too. But I kind of feel like those two groups aren't talking to each other. You got a bunch of people my age and older that are talking to each other. Uh, Jim Gray from down the road did a survey on his site a month or two ago where he asked his readers, like, what's your age? Like, just I'm just curious to know what the demographics of my site are. And like, overwhelmingly, it was people 50 and up. You know, the number one occupation of readers on his site were retired. So there's still a group of people that love film and love photography and love the history and the nerdy parts of it. And there's this newer, younger group that's starting to get interested too. But yeah, I don't think they're talking to one another. How how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, I think part of it's historical though, because what's, what's happened is when younger people were starting to get more interested in film and have been, there was too many older people who were like, get off my lawn, no, or preaching or or telling them (laughs) what is correct rather than helping them explore and enjoy. I mean, and that will create that divide. Uh, Look, I've seen slightly different in the photo walks I've joined here in Sydney where there has been younger people who who are actually quite interested in things like that, but they don't necessarily want to listen to a bunch of old guys on a podcast or anything like that. They, but they do they do their research. They pick cameras. They pick unique cameras. They don't necessarily just stick to the M6s and and, and so on. We've we got to be careful we don't sort of paint a picture of what we think certain groups of people are like through forums and internet chats and, and, right. and stuff like that. Having said that, I do want to actually under, ask Robert a particular question, which probably will make me sound like the old man raving his fist at the clouds, but I will ask it anyway. A term that gets thrown around a lot now is let's talk about particular film stocks like, you know, Kodak, Color Plus, Portrait, etc. But they use the word film stock. Back in the day when I was was using film without any digital, it was like, let's talk about a particular film. They weren't using the word film stock. Is that an industry term or is that just something that's sort of evolved and people just sort of say it now as films, you know, say film stock rather than just a film? I think it's a motion picture term. I don't think it's a still. The term stock in the still world means selling old images through a stocks picture service, Mm. the, the stock business. But the motion picture people use the term stock, in my time, use the term film stock when they were referring to the motion picture and we use the term in the still world we use term emulsion which is a misnomer but they were talking about a particular film batch or a particular film type and just used interchangeably and we we in manufacturing call them emulsions even though they're, they're actually dispersions that's just some history okay 
if, if, I, if I can get back to the event, I, I mean, I don't mean to belittle all these, these people that are out there shooting with these other cameras. I mean, obviously, if you bought an M6, you're enthusiastic about what you're doing. And, you know, these people were delighted to be able to meet these people from YouTube that have, you know, a million followers and are very much influencers. I'm a bit jaded and I look at it and think, you know, these people, uh, you know, I shoot expired film that is older than these people giving this advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, well, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I still have, I still have 300 feet of the, of the, of the Eastman 5220 XT from 1965. It was funny because somebody, somebody asked if I had ever shot expired film and I'm like, sure. I shoot expired film. He's like, well, do you have any with you? And I'm like, yeah, said, do you want to trade? And I was like, it just so happened to have, you know, an old steel can uh, film Ferrania P30 from the 1980s. And he looked at me with like, like you can still shoot film from the 80s. And I was like, sure. What do you have? And he's like, uh, I've got some color plus that expired last month. And I was like, sure, let's trade. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, it just never crossed their mind that that expired film would be anything older than like maybe a year or two. Uh, expired and you know and i think expired film it's just like you know i've talked to robert about this i'm shooting i've got like a 150 foot roll of tech pan from the from the, the mid 70s uh that i'm shooting with uh developing with the pota developer and just absolutely loving that that film but with these these, these people at the, at the film event you know it, it was interesting because not a single person that i talked to and i talked to probably 50 60 people over the course of a day and and a night and not one person had heard of our of our podcast. And, and I think part of that is that I maintain the Instagram account where we post photos of all the cameras we talk about. And there's a fair amount of engagement with that. But a lot of the primary discussion I is in a, a Facebook group. And I hate to tell you this, guys, but you know, shooters that are under the age of 25 are not lurking around on Facebook groups, uh, you know, looking 100%. for information about podcasts. You know, so 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 we're not reaching these people because, you know, we're not talking in the world where they exist. Maybe yeah. Uh, maybe we could talk afterward and get something going. I'm. I really been wanting to do that for a while now. I'm not saying I want to switch like demographics or anything. I mean, I'm not going to just suddenly stop posting on Facebook. But there is a group, and there's two groups that like the same thing, but they're not talking to each other. And I don't know how yeah. to do that. It's just the difference of platform used. Honestly, yeah, absolutely. Most Gen yeah, Z agree. gets their info from TikTok and talk to their friends on Discord nowadays. We need to get. We need to hire you, Jesse, to make TikToks for us. <laughs> I uh unfortunately very familiar with TikTok, so I'll send you some Ace film. Oh, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> I got I got two two boxes here. Can I entice you into this wonderful? Anybody ever seen a a cat and a camera in a can? I have not. It's a Holga. It's some kind of Holga instant camera. I use my phone. It's all written in Japanese. I use my Google Translate app on my phone to translate the Japanese text. Somewhere on here, it says makes cat noises. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm picture. I, I have this thing for sale, but part of me wants to just screw it and just open it up because I want to try this thing out. But I'm picturing a cat shaped camera that when you press the shutter release, it goes meow. I know that's a little bit crazy, but I feel like there's something there to these because i see enough reaction videos there's a lot people love unboxing videos uh just very very quick and i'm not good at that anybody who's been to my site i just i can't stop writing so that my long form reviews clearly aren't reaching a younger demographic and i completely understand why but i i feel like we need 
some kind of bridge to share that knowledge, not even just for the show, just in general. So it's not just a bunch of old farts in an echo chamber bitching and moaning about Gen Z and then a bunch of Gen Z's on in their own echo chamber not benefiting from all this knowledge that still is out there. Yeah, I, I think both sides would have ways to benefit each other, you know, the older Absolutely. generation with the knowledge mm. and the younger yeah. generation to bring fresh life into an older medium and show that people yeah. do love this medium that people have loved for decades and decades. For sure. We just have to keep the, the gatekeepers out, though. That's, that's, the, yeah. that's the key. I will, I will say that when I showed up to the beers and camera at night with the uh, Fuji G617, I was no longer invisible. Oh, there's been a couple of YouTube videos about that one. Everybody wanted to, to stop and talk to me about the 617 which was fun. I actually really enjoyed all the conversations and, you know, pretty much everybody I talked to started following the, uh, the podcast or following the, uh, the, the Instagram site. But yeah, I mean, I think that they are, you know, generally speaking, these people were very excited about photography, but they're just, and I just hate to say this, but, but as much as we're an echo chamber, the, 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 the Gen Z YouTube channels are also echo chambers. Uh, thus, the RV six sevens, the people were just like melting out on the sidewalks of Atlanta in 90 degree heat, lugging around those RV six sevens and treating them as if they were some sort of a point and shoot. Um, it's just a totally wrong application for that camera. But, you know, they were very proud to have those cameras out there. And now having fun. Boy, they are uncomfortable. Speaking of wide, you mentioned wide uh, and linking back to our previous episode just quickly. Um, I was out shooting with me. Now it's a shame he's he's left uh, because he had to go um, do something. But uh, I was shooting with Mina on uh, Sunday, and at the recent camera market in Sydney, he actually picked up a Horizon wide camera. I know Anthony, that's one of your favourite cameras, and yeah. uh, man, man, he went through some film on that one. So um, that that was fun. I've seen some of his results. It was uh, he, he's got a bit of a light leak, but is. That is that. That's a nice camera. It's the first time I've seen one in person. That, that that's a nice camera. Um, you you mentioned wide. We're, we're running low on time here, but I want to share two bits of gas. Uh, both wide angle. A camera that I've always heard a lot about, but I've never seen one in person. But I got one of these beauties, uh, a Lomo LC wide. Read my review, Mike. Read your review. Now, one thing I I should have read it because I didn't realize. <laughs> I did not realize this can shoot half frame too. You can switch. And square. Oh, it can do square too. Yeah. So that's probably what FS slash S means, full frame, square, mm. and then half yep. frame. And and I, I thought it's interesting in half frame mode, it just halfway opens. Yeah. Um, and then it's got a double exposure lever on it too. It's got auto exposure. Neat little camera. Little 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 trick with those, Mike, is shoot half frames, but shoot a shoot a panoramic in half frames. Okay. And you end up with like a diptych on steroids. A super oh. diptych. Yeah. A super diptych. And then my other find, it's its not the camera, it's just the lens that's on here. But um, in for Paul, you were talking earlier in your um, your camera crypt, you've gotten down to, to leaves and stems. But you know that in all these boxes of cameras that you've been rifling through for the past three to four months, sometimes there's buried gems. And that's where you got to be very careful when going through an old collection. You have to open every box, every bag unzip every little pouch of a camera bag because you never know what's going to be in there and i found this in the bottom of a box with a bunch of crap it was wrapped up in cellophane but it's a w nikkor uh 25 2.5 centimeter f4 rangefinder lens if you look at how narrow that is this thing is in, in excellent shape this lens is so small 
you can't even focus it on the lens. You have to use the wheel on the camera to actually get the lens to focus properly. The, the viewfinder, I found a, a Footlander one too, but um, to just find, I'm really excited to try this lens out, a 25 millimeter Nikon rangefinder lens. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. The depth of field on this thing, it's basically fixed focus. There's a, there's a depth of field scale on here at F8, everything from just barely over four feet to infinities in focus. And that's at F8. It stops wow. down to uh, it stops down to twenty two. Even at f eleven, probably three feet to infinity is in focus. So it's effectively a, a fixed focus Nikon rangefinder. So that's a that's a very valuable lens. Yeah, I, I, I looked probably, it up. I've had a dozen of them and like a thread mount, but I've never had one in S. Yeah, they made it in both S. The 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 Leica mounts actually even more rare. Because yeah. I looked it up in Bob Rodoloni's book um, when I first found it, but I'm really excited to shoot this. I'm really excited to try out the Lomo. Two very different ways of getting wide angle, but um, I, I'm a huge fan. I like wide angle much more than Telly, so um, I'm interested in that. So, so uh, Anthony asked to, to borrow uh, with an option to buy my Pen F with the uh, 25 millimeter, so another 25 millimeter lens F4, but obviously it's half frame. Uh, and I'm going to send you another camera. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I think you'll be happy um, to give it a shot too. So um, you should have a package coming. Jesse, I'm going to send you a box too. Another one. Um, we'll talk after the show. Alrighty. Before we go though, we got Bob's book. It's, you know, you had, you had mentioned to me, this went out of print, right? Didn't Robert? I had another printing done. So it was out of print and then you had a new run of it. So you yeah. have it for sale again. I need to get one of those. Definitely. I only have five books left. I, okay. I'm probably going to have another have to have another printing because people keep saying they want to buy it, and I hate to deprive anybody of having a book. Well, we'll we'll put the uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. Uh, of how to uh, how to order them. Yeah, 454 pages, hardbound. It'll make your head spin. There's a lot of technical details in here, but oh, it is it right is up absolutely- my alley. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, just I'm showing the back cover and it's like so many different kinds of film stocks. The back cover was a joint effort between your former guest, Todd Gustafson and me. We spent an afternoon almost killing ourselves falling on ladders. I own most of the I owned most of the film in that back cover, but some of it, maybe half of it belonged to the Eastman house. All right. Well, that was a good, uh, that's a good point to stop. Wanted to thank uh, Robert once again for coming back. It's always super fascinating. Uh, the The level of knowledge you have and can remember, even though you've been retired for 20 years, is just so impressive. I say it almost every episode, but we need to preserve these stories. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. I know you said you've listened to all the episodes before, but thank you for coming on. Um, I, I just enjoy having any kind of new listener, but to have someone as passionate about, you know, this community and everything that uh, that we do is is extra good. Uh, Mina had to leave, but uh, we have the regular hosts here. Um, I think we settled on next episode fifty eight. We're gonna go back to a brand specific episode and cover Yashika. Um, Yashika is a, a a company that from the very first moments of me getting back into film, I had a Yashika Electro, and I have a soft spot for that camera still to this day, even though. It may not be the most technically impressive one out there. Yashika owned NICA. NICA rangefinders are excellent. Many people I know that 
repair Leicas will say that a Nika rangefinder is, is very close, if not just as good as the real thing. They're very well bit cameras. They're very fun to use. Yashica used Tamioka lenses on a lot of their cameras and optically excellent Yashinan lenses. I just picked up a Pentamatic today, which is in great shape. So I think there's a lot to discuss there from the very beginning, their TLRs to the that goofy Yashika Samurai camcorder half frame weird bridge camera that they did. But just wanted to say thanks, everybody, and uh, have a good night. Good night, thanks for everybody. having me. Bye. Good nice night, everybody. everybody. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. Hey, we went through a whole episode and didn't talk about Sinistel. No, no, we did. <laughs> I know people are going to be so disappointed.